Hello and welcome to the FT Advisor podcast, a weekly podcast series brought to you by FT Advisor. Each week we'll be joined by guests from the financial services world to discuss the most pressing industry issues. I'm Amy Austin, Senior Reporter at FT Advisor, and today I will be delving into the future of SIPs with Steve McPhillips, Step Technical Sales Director at Provider Dentons, and Julian Puddy, Director at Advice Firm Opus Business Pensions. So welcome to you both and thank you very much for joining us. So you could argue today that, you know, the SIP name has been kind of tarnished in recent years uh, with attention being drawn on the type of investments held within this pension wrapper and ultimately, you know, where the responsibility lies when things go wrong. But, you know, recent cases, which we will be discussing today, um, kind of set a new precedence and obviously the coronavirus pandemic is also creating a new normal. So could SIPs make the ultimate comeback, really? So, Stephen, let's start with you. What do you think the future has in store for SIPs following the outcome of the Kerry versus Adams case? I think the um, the future for SIPs is still bright, and you might think I would say that as a provider of uh, bespoke SIPs, but genuinely I do believe that the future is bright for SIPs. We could argue for a while, actually, about what is a SIP and what's not a SIP. Uh, platform SIPs are obviously very different um, from a full bespoke SIP where clients have got a full range of investment options. But uh, one way or another, clients will still need uh, a SIP wrapper in certain circumstances. And um, the Adams v. Carey pension case uh, provides some insight into maybe a line of travel or direction of travel within the industry. I think some uh, some good points came out of that, but we do need to bear in mind that it was based on three very specific legal arguments that were put forward. So it does make any real broad conclusions difficult to draw. Um, but still, I think there's going to be a place for SIPs well into the future. Um, and that, that applies to both platform SIPs and full bespoke SIPs where clients are going to want to use um, the, the wrapper for commercial property purchase, loans done connected parties, those sorts of things. Because clients inevitably, um, some of them will want to go after better investment returns than they can achieve in uh, cash. And that's partly where we've got to, why we've got to where we've got to with the industry, people chasing high returns in, in some cases. Um, but I think the, if, 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 if there's one positive to come out of the Adams v. Carey pensions case is that we have got a bit of clarity about how a high court judge views a SIP wrapper as opposed to the actual investments within the SIP wrapper. Um, the judge made a clear distinction between the two there, which I thought was useful and important as well. Sure. And what about you, Julian? What do you think after yeah. this court well, case? I famously think we used the line, we've learned lessons. I think the whole execution-only basis for any investment can always fall foul of these types of outcomes. But, but I also think that this is an isolated incident and highlights that perhaps even more due diligence should be carried out on behalf of potentially, and I'm going to say it, SIP providers in future, and maybe look through to the companies that are advising the client as a sort of second or if you like final check um, as to you know who's who's actually at the core source of it. I know myself from my own experience that a lot of the major life companies are now are certainly carrying out far more due diligence than they ever did. Um, still looking through to advice companies, my clients now are being sort of scrutinized to the nth degree to make sure that we as an advice company are the real deal. Um, but I, you know, I certainly don't think that the overall SIP market will be muddied by this particular event. Um, I think there's going to be a demand for SIPs way into to the future. Sure. And on the back of this, obviously, this case, do you think that 
savers will be a bit more wary about using a SIP, you know, knowing that they might be liable for these non-standard investment choices? If that's, that question is aimed at me, no, I don't think savers will shy away from SIPs. So as long as it's made very clear from the outset that the culpability doesn't purely lie with the SIP provider in question. I think that this were the case. We start to foster a culture of clients offloading all and any responsibility for their investment decisions, which means in essence that they would always be looking for a, a sort of get out of jail card. Now, I strongly believe that, the, the, that there should be more collaboration between uh, regulated advisors, the client, the SIP provider, really, really for the sort of the best course of action and best practice, um, not just the client's desire to make a quick and very risky return. Yeah, I, I would agree with that, Julian. Yeah, absolutely. And, and and again, one of the things that came out of the the, the Adams v. Kerry pensions case was the the judge did make it clear that uh, consumers need to take responsibility for their investment decisions. And, and again, it was useful to hear, and particularly non-advised execution-only clients, it was uh, it was helpful to hear that from a high court judge because that's largely what's happening. They're self-invested pensions. The provider isn't making the investment decisions on the, the, the consumer's behalf here. The consumer's deciding to make this investment. But I agree again with Julian. Um, work has to be done in certain quarters with the industry amongst providers to ensure that they are carrying out adequate due diligence, not only on the investment itself, but on the introducer of that investment or the introducer of that client. Sure. And I guess uh, you as a provider, Steve, you're probably quite happy with the outcome of the Kerry case. Uh, broadly, yes, uh, because it, it did bring some some clarity around it. And uh, it, it, was, uh, it was just it was just helpful to me as an individual anyway, uh, to read that uh, there's a clear separation between a, a SIP wrapper and what then happens within it, because I think that does get muddied sometimes. Uh, within the industry or in consumers' eyes. People have got this perception that SIPs are all bad. It's, the SIP wrapper is a, is a tax wrapper. It's what happens within it then, and that's down to individual consumers and also individual providers about what they allow to happen within it and the amounts and concentrations of those investments within it as well. Because, again, we've seen a line of travel within, industry, within the industry, unfortunately, that has seen uh, high volumes of clients go into a particular investment or investments, some of which were toxic. Um, and you could argue that um, with hindsight, um, a given provider would not have allowed three, four, five hundred clients to go into one specific investment. Um, so those were all things, uh, I think, that, that came out one way or another from the judgment. And we as a provider, I think it just it gave us some comfort that the way we, we've been doing things historically within Denton's about due diligence and dealing with amounts and concentrations of investments into specific areas. And we've always had a tight handle on those um, and thankfully unaffected by a lot of the, 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 the negative things that have been going around the industry over the last few years. Sure. And... What about going forward? So obviously the FOS and the FSCS has kind of you know, been a bit tough on SIP providers and, you know, when it comes to all of this. Um, will their thinking behind, you know, their cases have to change going forward on the back of this case? Or do you think they'll still take it case by case basis? And if they think the provider or advisor is in the wrong, that's who they're going to be coming after? Again, I, I just think this has to be less of a question of who's at fault and more of a question of trying to eliminate the issue in the first instance. So I think it's far better to have some sort of steps in place which highlight future areas of contention right at the early stages of the advice process or recommendation or, frankly, any underlying investment. I think that 
the way things were to, if things were to go wrong during any process, it's far easier to identify the root cause instead of some subjective legal argument later on down the line. Yeah, agreed. And uh, from from my perspective as a provider, Amy, it's it's kind of impossible to tell from the outside about the um, what the decision making processes would be within FOSS and FSCS. But um, it would seem logical to me, anyway, that um, that they, they would have regard to the outcome of the the Adams v Kerry pensions case. Although it it, it didn't help, unfortunately, there was a FOSS decision handed down just after the the Kerry decision was handed down earlier this year. I think the FOSS decision had been made in advance of the outcome of the Kerry case. Um, So uh, we're still not clear exactly what the decision-making process would be. But to me, logic would dictate that the, the, the Kerry case has some bearing on future decisions within FOSS. Sure, yeah, I have been keeping my eye out for, you know, a decision coming out of Kerry, but there hasn't been any of yet, so we'll have to wait and see. Um, so let's move on to SIPs after COVID, because obviously this has thrown quite a big span in the works for, you know, everyone. Um, so do you think that COVID has kind of helped save see SIPs in a more positive light and, you know, seen how they can be good in these times of crisis? Um, Julian, shall we start with you? Yeah, I'm not. I'm not sure um, because of COVID savers have seen SIPs particularly in the more positive light. And actually, I don't think they were seen as a negative light in the first instance too much. And that's my personal view. But I do think over the past six months, we've all had a chance to take a step back and revisit our sort of overall financial well-being. Um, good products like SIPs play a huge part in our, our planning for retirement. But I'd also say that this pause in the sort of normal day-to-day sort of, you know, life that we've been used to is definitely focused the mind on retirement planning in general, whether that's pension-related or not. Sure. What about you, Steve? Um, I, th- I think in certain quarters, uh, people have viewed a uh, SIPRAP or, or indeed a SAS, uh, for that matter, as a positive during the, the crisis times. Um, there has been an opportunity, provided it's an investment that stands up on its own merits, there has been an opportunity for clients to uh, if they own commercial property either through the company or as an in- individual to sell the property or part sell the property to SIP or SAS to help raise maybe much needed cash flow for the business. Um, so in that respect, and it may have been, SIPs may have been a bit of a lifeline for clients during the, the crisis so far. Um, but as I said, that's not going to be universal because not everyone's got a commercial property that they can sell either from the company or from them as an individual to the pension scheme. But for those who have, um, it's been a positive um, but it's not, that's just not specifically related to SIP, though that, that also brought, uh, spills over into the SaaS world as well, because the commercial property rules are, sorry, the rules around commercial property are identical across SIP and SaaS. Um, but possibly a bit of a lifeline in some cases. But in, I agree with Julian, again, in overall terms, um, I, I wouldn't have thought that um, during the, the COVID crisis so far, SIPs have seen in a, been seen in a particularly positive light uh, compared to any other period in history. Sure. And Julian, I know this is uh, something that you've been delving into a little bit. Um, so there's kind of new property laws coming around, making it easier for commercial property to be converted into residential. Um, do you think this is going to help propel SIPs in the future? Yeah, well, I, I, undoubtedly, I've seen, I've definitely seen an upsurge in clients wanting to investigate, investigate the commerciality with what I would call the sort of high street retail shop sector, undoubtedly, that big big sort of upturn in that. And I think they see that as a bit of an opportunity to hold as an asset in either a 
Sip also. So I, th I think the belief behind that is that we're seeing this sort of painful demise of the sort of high street shop sector, uh, and as such, the, the property uh, can be acquired at quite a low cost. Uh, I mean, certainly I live in Bristol, so I'm, see I'm seeing what's happening here. I can't speak for the whole country. Uh, and, you know, with, with something like residential planning permission allowed on that property, and I appreciate we can't hold it indefinitely in the CIFRA SAS, I do think this dovetails into the possibility that these types of premises that we know is the high street shop will start to potentially become a growth area for residential property going forward. So, yeah, I think that'd be quite exciting for people that have got that kind of entrepreneurial, frugal outlook with acquiring commercial property. Um, that the, the high street's definitely now something that my clients are focusing on as, a, as an acquisition. Sure. And what about you, Steve? Yeah, I certainly agree with Julian on that front again. But as a, a naturally cautious provider, I would say, uh, Dentons would um, be wanting to make clear that, you've, and as Julian's alluded to, you've got to be very careful about um, conversion of commercial to residential and when it, at what, what point does it become habitable? Because uh, that's a very grey area across the, the whole industry. Um, and if, if HMRC deems that property as being habitable at a point in time before any of the rest of us did, then there's potential tax charge uh, looming for the, the, the pension scheme member there. So, y yes, it's, it's a positive, but it has to be done very carefully in a controlled manner to avoid any potential tax uh, issues further down the line. Sure. So it might not be for everyone then? Yes, correct. <laughs> Yeah, absolutely. I don't think so for everybody. And I definitely concur um, with, with that, that you've got to be mindful that that might start up as a really good venture in terms of the commerciality. But as soon as you start to look residential, you know, it's a, it's a massive red flag for any of those types of ventures to hold it. So, no. Sure. Um, and also, you know, during this whole COVID time, what um, I've been noticing by speaking to a few in the industry is that SASs seem to be making like somewhat of a comeback. You know, SAS is a quiet niche in this market, but it seems that people have been flocking to them for, you know, this whole loan back feature that they have. Um, I've even had, you know, some people saying to me, bear in mind, they, they may be SAS providers, <laughs> but have been saying, you know, Will SASs take over SIPs or, you know, are SIPs always the king of pensions in this kind of world? I'll probably just jump, jump in on that one, if I may, is it absolutely not. Um, I think SIPs <laughs> have a very important role to play uh, in, in pension planning in general, not only for the retail client, but for those uh, who want to invest in a more, in more tangible assets other than market-driven investments, but also... Uh, for the non-corporates who want a pension arrangement with more flexibility uh, alongside the retirement planning goals. But, you know, as you say, naturally, we've seen a resurgence of the SAS. Um, but that has a lot more to do with the, the corporate type entities who are looking for mechanisms to fund their business, as we know, you know, in conjunction with the right type of businesses, a loan back from a SAS is able to quench that sort of capital requirement if one wants it. But... I, I do, another sort of point, and I, I do feel, however, we are seeing, um, we, we should start to see more regulation around SASs. Um, that, that's one of the areas that I'm quite keen to see a change in. I myself, having worked in the industry, what, for over 15 years in the SAS and SIP market, have seen an increase in unregulated operators uh, out there offering some quite worrying advice, frankly. Um, I, I go, I'd go as far as to say that 
they're just literally exploiting the spirit of the, of the SASA region itself. And that just certainly needs to stop. Yeah, I would agree with that entirely, Amy. Um, certainly, uh, SAS is not for everyone. And as Julian has alluded to there as well, um, uh, not, all, not everyone can have a SAS. Um, it says for corporate entities, limited companies typically uh, with directors. Um, so, and given that SAS and SIP are broadly the same uh, investment um, options other than the loan to a connected party, there always, I think there'll always, always be a place for SIPs. Um, and perhaps a provider that only offers SaaS may try and persuade us all that SaaS is everything. <laughs> but, I mean, Denton's offers both SaaS and SIP, so we can be agnostic about it. I would say you're absolutely right. Well, there has been um, a resurgence in SaaS and the number of SaaS inquiries, I think, across the whole industry so far this year, uh, which is good to see. I think a lot of people thought SaaS is perhaps we're going to uh, weather on the vine after AD, particularly because the rules around loans to uh, employers became a lot more strict than they were previously. The, the, post AD, the, the SAS trustees have to take a first legal charge over a suitable asset, and that was never the case pre-AD. So it has become more difficult for a, a SAS of SAS trustees to make a loan to an employer post AD, but provided that there are suitable assets or a suitable asset there. Um, for security, then it uh, offers that that sort of lifeline that SIPs don't offer. But um, no, SIP and SAS, I think they'll, they'll both continue to be uh, popular going forward. One one won't lose out at the expense of the other, in my opinion. Um, one of the things that uh, sometimes also is a driver for SAS, incidentally, is not necessarily just the the option to, to lend money to the employer. Um, if you've got a number of members in the arrangement and there's quite an age disparity between the two, say, say for example, typical mum and dad, son and daughter in the business, a SaaS does make it a lot more straightforward and easy to create liquidity for uh, payment of benefits to uh, a retiring member. And, and sometimes it's not the, uh, the possibility of a loan to an employer that's driving uh, clients down the SaaS route in our experience. It's that ability to have that flexibility to create the liquidity. And also sometimes, uh, and again, there's maybe a, a perception in the industry that this isn't the case, but sometimes a SaaS can be more cost-effective um, than SIPs. Not a one-member arrangement, we would say, certainly in terms of our charging structure. But if you've got three or four people all taking part in the one property purchase or the one investment, um, as far as we're, our charging structure is concerned, uh, it's a lot more cost-effective to have a, a one SAS with the four members in it than to do trying to do the same thing across four SIPs. So it's not always a loan. There are other facets to SAS as well that are making them uh, popular at the moment. Sure. And to finish up, guys, um... Let's have a look into the future a little bit. <laughs> Where do you see SIPs in the next five years? I don't mind who takes it first. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, I, I, I agree. The, 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 the thing, I think, is you're just being pointed out there that they, they, don't, they both have their different attributes. And so, you know, I think the, the, the SAS will always be very strong in its redeeming feature with, with the loan back. Um, but you've got to be a corporate to, to qualify. So that's going to throw a lot of other people out the market. And, and I get a lot of situations where uh, I talk to businesses that have got existing SIPs. That, and I always describe the SAS as the SIPs bigger brother, if you like, um, yeah. who wants to sort of migrate over to a SAS because the business has grown, they've scaled up, more directors have become involved. Um, and and, and uh, you know, the SAS, I think, probably is the most misunderstood product in the pension industry full stop. Uh, people don't really understand. And that sometimes can be the fault of the knowledge base of the general advice community out there. So, but I just think they just both have their place. Perfect partnership. 
completely, completely agree with com- yeah, completely agree with what Julian's saying there. Um, so, SIT won't disappear over the next five years. I, I'm confident that uh, there continues to be a market for SIT, um, particularly uh, platform and bespoke SITs, uh, which are, uh, in my opinion, as I said at the start, potentially different vehicles, although they're written under the same rules. Um, so yeah, I, I think there's a bright future for for SIPs, and I'm not just saying that because we're a provider of SIPs. I genuinely think people do need them, and with the right advice, as Julian was saying, the right advice, um, clients will continue to use SIP and SaaS moving forward into the future. Brilliant. Well, I think we can call it a day there. So thank you both for joining us. Please stay tuned as after the break, I'll be joined by Rachel Mortimer and Imogen Chu, where we'll be discussing. What has happened in this week's news? And welcome back to FT Advisor podcast. And joining me now, I have Imogen Chu and Rachel Mortimer, both who are senior reporters at FT Advisor. Hello. Hello. This week saw the debate around whether tech can help advice resurface. And I believe this was with you, Imogen. Yeah, so um, earlier this week, I had a conversation with a f- technology firm, which has also has an advice arm, and they have plans to uh, launch basically a reg tech system, which advisors can use, which they claim will make it impossible to give bad advice. Now, this has kind of long been touted as kind of the halfway house between robo-advice and human advice. So they are building this system. They're saying it's going to take approximately 15 months to build. They're currently in the fundraising stage. And the idea is that it's all remote advice. So it's over kind of Zoom or an equivalent. And the idea is that the advisor will be having the conversation and that technology through the system will flag up when there's potential issues. If the advisor is saying things that may come across as too pushy or the client is showing signs of misunderstanding, this can then be um, kind of put through a filter and cases might be marked like red, amber, green. And to help advice firms kind of monitor the level of advice they're giving, Um, It will also help from a suitability review type thing, because uh, when the FCA does come knocking, all of the advice given will be timestamped, recorded, the customer, the the FCA can see the customer's reaction, it will help with stuff like insistent clients. So um, yeah, it's been a pretty interesting conversation. Sure. And what would the impact be on the wider market then? Like, could we see more advice firms doing this? Yeah, so I think... It's one of those things that if the FCA gets its hands on this kind of this kind of system and decides that it's a good way to give advice, then it could be kind of mandated um, across the industry. But I think really the big impact may be on issues um, that can help advisors with kind of rising regulatory costs. So uh, like professional indemnity indemnity insurers um, are going to be much happier to insure advisors if there's going to be a complete paper trail of, well, a digital paper trail of the advice they're giving. So you could see kind of like advice firms that operate this kind of system see lower PI costs. And eventually, if it, if it does work the way this, this firm claims it can, then we're not going to see any kind of historic advice claims in the future when advisors use this system. So hopefully, you know, the FCS levy and all these costs that advisors facing could see, could be uh, dwindled down if this kind of stuff is um, taken on board. Yeah, I agree. I think whilst obviously 
the DB market had a, a massive part to play in, in rising PI costs in the last couple of years. A lot of people have also said that it is just generic historic advice compliance as well, which is, has, has seen those bills going up and up over the last couple of years. So if they had something, uh, something that's FCA approved and backed by tech like this, I think PI insurers are definitely going to get on board with that. It kind of almost seems like too good to be true, though. What have you found other advisors saying? Are they kind of on board or are they a bit like, mm, is it even going to work? Sure. So, yeah, there's loads of scepticism around it, really, as to, um, on the one hand, some people are saying, well, this is just basically video recording. Like, I could do that on Zoom right now. Yeah. And then there's other people saying that, actually to make it worth it the tech's not there yet for the ai but in general i was surprised um but when people take it kind of at face value and think okay this this system could work advisors were, were pretty excited about it um one said to me uh, it sounded incredible and like he would definitely take it on board if the fca approved it as a as a bad way of giving advice um one advisor was less impressed and he described the process as like a bit big brother. And I don't think he liked the idea of um, constant recording, but he did say that if it worked, then he could imagine there being a push from the FCA compliance departments and PI insurers for advice firms to use this. And I think people kind of understood that if we can get something like this across the line, then it would become the norm because it fills the gaps of so many problems that are facing the advice industry at the moment. Sure. And then, so we've also seen a lot of acquisitions happening in the market as well this week. I mean, it's been acquisition busy, busy, busy. <laughs> <laughs> so we saw a newly integrated wealth manager make, you know, a big splash in this kind of market. Um, Rachel, I think you're the one talking about this. Yeah, well, I was obviously away this week, but I do read FT Advisor on my holiday. Um, so I have been keeping up. <laughs> Keeping up to, to date, um, and it's a relatively, yeah, relatively new integrated wealth manager. They're called Beaumont Wealth Group, um, and they revealed in the last couple of days that they've got this ten million pounds um, acquisitions war chest. Um, if that were they looking to buy uh, perhaps bigger advisors, that wouldn't necessarily spread that far. But they've specifically said that they're targeting advisors with up to hundred million pounds in assets under, under advice um, and asset managers with up to 200 million pounds in funds under management. So actually that 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 amount of funding will will spread quite far, I imagine. Sure. And is consolidators targeting smaller advisors a pattern we're kind of likely to see happen in the near future? Yeah, definitely. I think over the last few years, obviously, there's there's been this big talk about the sort of impending advice gap um, and, and a lot of advisors are approaching retirement age um, compounded by rising regulatory bills. And I know we just mentioned there that um, it's like, you know, it's being largely driven by FSCS levies uh, and PI costs. Um, and perhaps for some, it, this is this is the time to leave the market now. But um, almost all sort of introducers or consolidators or advisors themselves that I speak to say one of the most important factors in selling a business is looking after your clients and making sure that your clients who you've known for you know you've known some of these for 20 30 years are being passed on to, to a decent company to look after them properly sure yeah. yeah i absolutely agree on that most advisors that i speak to about um consolidation and mergers and acquisitions say that it's the most important thing for an advice firm to have an exit plan um 
obviously it's not the kind of business that can just keep rolling unless you have um, a really good succession plan. So I think a lot of advisors are A, looking at retirement and B, looking at these costs and thinking, actually, I'm going to set the company and my clients up for a better future if I tack into a consolidator. Um, we actually saw another consolidator launch last week as well. Um, it is called Social Group. Uh, it's backed by um, a private equity firm and they're basically looking at building a 300 advisor strong business over the next five years. It's got some pretty um, industry veterans involved, like the ex-Openwork CEO, Marianne McIntyre. Um, she's involved as well as Simon Brunt from Intrinsic Financial Services initially and ex-Quilter Chevy Oak boss, Martin Baines. So really, really interesting to see whether advisors jump on this bandwagon as well. Is COVID going to have a role in this I mean I guess it will it has a role in everything at the moment yeah <laughs> um I think uh the industry is a bit split on this over lockdown itself uh some firms sort of shied away from the pipeline that they had in place of, of deals and put everything on hold obviously no one knew what was going on so that's 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 not a criticism of that sort of business decision um whilst other people pushed on with deals and acquisitions um, and were quite active in the market over the summer I've spoken to some people who think there will be a spike in advisor deals in the coming year. Uh, again, it, it's difficult. You, you know, perhaps the financial impact on financial firms hasn't, financial advice firms hasn't been as bad as people thought it might be. The feedback that we're getting back from the FCA, from the surveys that they've done, is that actually smaller companies are holding up quite well. Um, so, yeah, I mean, we'll, we'll see what the next few months brings. But, yeah, activity activity in the sort of acquisitions and mergers market is 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 certainly expected to, to continue. Yeah. No, it's interesting, like, um, seeing all these consolidators launching with kind of massive plans, um, millions and millions of pounds in the acquisitions. Watercheth, like you said, aiming for, like, 300 advice firms to join them. Um I don't think these things pop up without the demand there. So I think even if people aren't reporting necessarily, they're looking to sell, mm. I think that there has to be some kind of um, word around the industry that the demand is there in order for these things to even launch. Mm. I mean, we've been speaking to advisors who have said that they've increasingly been approached by people looking to potentially buy their business yeah. um, in, in the last 12 months. So yeah, it's, there's, uh, there's certainly demand on either side. Sure. I mean, even like from my perspective, even the SIP market is crazy at the moment. You know, people are snapping up other people like the friends and us. So yeah. I guess we'll just see it continuing. But anyway, thank you all for joining us and Thanks tune in you. next week for the next episode. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Coriant. Coriant provides wealth management services centered around you. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Coriant has experienced teams who can craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex. Real wealth requires real solutions. Connect with a wealth advisor today at Coriant.com. That's Coriant.com.